Okay. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Future Fossils podcast, episode four. This is Michael Garfield. And I'm Evan Snyder, and we have a special guest today who I would love to introduce to you all. Uh, his name is Dr. Bruce Damer. How's it going, Bruce? It's going fabulously. Bruce is a super cool fella. He's got his hand in many, many different pies, almost oddly, kind of like single-handedly standing there in between origins of life research and asteroid mining, space exploration and colonization, the, uh, the you know, holding a, uh, you know, one of the many people in the, in the community that is holding down the legacy of the first psychedelic renaissance and providing a, some perspective and eldership in the 21st century second psychedelic renaissance. So, I mean, really, really just like an all-around visionary, and we're, we're super delighted to have you on the show, Bruce. Thank you. It's an honor. Uh, since I met you, I guess, several years ago at Burning Man, it's been wonderful, uh, Michael, to follow your, your progress through the ether and your wonderful vapor trail of your beautiful art. Uh, and musical performances. Uh, you're in a flourishing state, as I can see. Now you're doing tablecloths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all that going on. But, you know, like Evan and I started this podcast uh, as a means of having the kind of conversation that is not very frequently afforded by us uh, or artists working in, in festival culture and this kind of thing, which is this question of... of the of deep time and you know the the kind of great myths that you enjoy ask you know asking about and playing with you know stories of our our deep deep origins and our destiny and what it means to think about these these vast expanses of time as individuals but also as a species and and you know what stepping out of our kind of like the cave of our uh, limited focus in in culture and and like you know social media instantaneity into this terrain of you know the you know evolutionary destiny and you know what it means to be to to totally change our notions of where we're coming from and headed. This is the thing. Sure. Well, that's why, that's why we call the podcast Future Fossils, which uh, I don't think we did the title initially, so we might as well do it now. Bruce, uh, thanks again for being with us. Uh, I see you've done some uh, consultation work for, for NASA. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, about, I'd say, 14 years of work, uh, about 25 projects, uh, starting with uh, real-time 3D simulations of agents like astronauts in, in Mars, kind of like Matt Damon uh, as a bot, um, that was in 1999, 2000, and then ending up with simulating in 3D with physics pretty much every mission. I mean, from shuttles, space station construction, Hubble servicing mission, rovers on Mars and the moon. And then eventually I was tapped to help design a human to asteroid mission in 2007. Wow. And then in the last couple of years, asteroid retrieval and resource harvesting uh, came up, uh, and that's the Shepard Project, uh, which is really, it's, it's a concept, it's not an actual funded mission, but that, that was my dream come true. Yeah, well, I, I can see uh, some very interesting potential there, because uh, I don't know the, the exact uh, terms to describe it, but it seems you're using basically a, a very large... Uh, balloon that you can deploy around a meteor or comet to basically create your own uh, envelope around that object and, and manipulate it subtly, uh, either with atmospheric pressure changes or velocity changes with gas jets and such. Um, it's very, very cool, man. Yeah, and you know, I, I've been working on this for, I actually found my drawings from when I was in high school in 1978 when I was starting to work on this question of harvesting resources from asteroids and when the shuttle wasn't flying yet and I was kind of saying well what kind of stepping stones could we use to really sustainably go to space and it wasn't until uh, years and years and years of work on this and then the envelope inside about 10 years ago and then I met Peter Janiskins who's an asteroid astronomer at the SETI Institute and he 
he and I were, I was showing him the CAD diagrams on my phone of this envelope uh, enclosure of an asteroid. And he said, oh, that'll never work. And I said, well, who are you? And he said, I'm an asteroid astronomer. Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, dear, you know, I've just been given peer review thumbs down. And we went out to lunch and had a bowl of clam chowder. And by the end of the bowl of clam chowder, he turned to me and said, I figured out how it can work. Nice. So that was the introduction of xenon, xenon gas. And using that, just the friction... So the asteroid comes of these things are usually spinners, and you have to stop them. So just through the the friction in the gas, you stop the tumbling, and then you can use a wave of gas inside your balloon to create a wind that will then rotate it like a sailing ship, hmm. and then start imparting a small what we in the business call delta v, you know, a small change in velocity. Right. Very gently, because these things are rubble piles. You know, you're not going to have Bruce Willis with a jackhammer, or you're not going to bolt into them and put factories on them. They're very, very fragile. And so, gas management uh, was was. And I asked him at the time. I said, "Is this new?" And he said, "This is totally new." Wow. Mm. So, are, are you using xenon gas in part because it's a, a noble gas and therefore won't react with the materials that you're potentially going to find on these objects? Yeah, the, the initial mission was was to bring one to lunar orbit for then basically astronaut geologists to sample. So we would use the same xenon gas exactly. You're, you're absolutely right, Evan, that you don't want to have something that's very reactive messing up your surface chemistry. Hmm. And also because you're carrying about eight tons of it on board to run your solar electric propulsion. So it's really the same gas that you're using for all the all the for structure and for thrust and for handling. Yes, we we do have to take care of this place first and foremost. I I don't like the idea of leaving Earth as a husk and going off forward to other horizons. You know, I feel like uh, the Federation's um, notion of of the homeworld being uh, we like Wally. You know. <laughs> right. Do we want to do that? I I I would rather do everything possible to avoid that scenario. And you know, there's a. Um... This reminds me, uh, all last week I was in Texas at a, a conference in Galveston on uh, Origin of Life, and one of our speakers was the chief scientist on all of the Mars program for NASA, and he brought up all the latest imagery from Curiosity as it's starting to climb the mountain. But one, one of the things they did was they went through an area just below the mountain, and uh, they found a lakeshore. And I was I was just completely thrilled because this is an ancient lake shore. It's probably could be a billion years old, but it's clearly they, they drove up through this lake shore and there was rocks affected by salt. And it's a, it looked exactly like the environment we were in in July in Australia, in the Pilbara in Western Australia, amongst the three and a half billion year old stromatolite fossil formations, talking about future fossils wow, yeah. and past. And so there was a nice connection between space and my other focus, which is origin of life. I'd love to hear more from you, Bruce, about how those two things connect for you uh, emotionally or or like where you find the, the link between the, you know, the study of deep past origin issues and the you know, this, this sort of more playful engineering type uh, curiosity about space exploration, because they're definitely related. And you kind of, you hint at that in the TEDx presentations, but I'd love to hear more about, you know, how those two things are connected for you. It all came down to sort of a moment in the mid-70s, about 1976, when I was kind of a sense of little kid, and I really loved nature. And right next to where we lived was this beautiful rolling sagebrush hills, and this is up in central British Columbia. And I loved the environment, but I knew how fragile it was because our house had been cut in as a new development, and I could see how bulldozers completely would wipe out that original fragile desert environment, and you build all these tract homes. And I was always concerned that they would just continue building our subdivision and wipe out, which they did eventually. They wiped out my beloved environments where I walked as a kid. 
<clears throat> so the, the thought occurred to me, one, where did this miracle of life, these plants coming up through the, uh, through the frosty ground in the spring, where did it come from and how on earth do we as tools of life, as, as the products of life, perpetuate it? You know, what is this all about? And I, my interest in space and having seen Neil Armstrong on the black and white TV, just like, uh, like Neil Stevenson had, it sort of joined together emotionally. Like, if I can figure out where life started or how this actually came about, and I'll work on that my whole life. I made that commitment when I was that age. And at the same time, I was so powerfully drawn to space that I thought that they would, they would merge sometime in the future. And they are, uh, because the, our model for the origin of life uh, has, has revealed some surprising possibilities that may affect how we even see our civilization um, and go forward. And it may give us a template for a completely different understanding of living systems. And if we do this in the lab, if we're able to make this uh, emergent system work with chemistry and watch it start to happen... It'll be as powerful as when we've got those Apollo 8 pictures of the Earth from space. If, we, if we're looking into a dish in a lab and seeing a growing away from thermodynamic equilibrium system you know, that's starting to evolve, it'll be a powerful image for, for human beings. That's, uh, that's awesome because we, we've brought up in this podcast in an earlier episode the fact that Stuart Brand was uh, one of the you know the key figures responsible in leading the petition to get those images released that they were originally classified, and you know they actually had to they had to sign and and stamp and deliver a, a petition to the U.S. government to to let us see those images from space, and now and you know and so, so I I agree, and then also you get into this thing about. Um, about how the current understanding of early life on Earth has a lot to do with asteroids and comets, and that these uh, we know now in a way that we didn't just a few years ago that these uh, bolides floating through through uh, interplanetary and interstellar space are the home to. Uh, a, a wealth of amino acids, and that it may be that they they are uh, you know crucially responsible for seeding planets with the the necessary precursors for self organizing chemistry. Yeah, exactly. In fact, Dave Deemer, who's my scientific colleague at uh, and I would say my mentor at UC Santa Cruz, is the discoverer. Uh, back in 1982, he took uh, a piece of the Murchison meteorite, which had fallen on Australia in 1969, and he put it into solution, and it formed lipids, beautiful lipids. So he proved that <clears throat> not only were amino acids coming in from space, but also the building blocks of lipids, which is every cell wall. And it was a major breakthrough in the field. And so he and I have extended that now out to a whole new theory, uh, which we call the terrestrial origins hypothesis, which literally got presented on Thursday night uh, <laughs> to the top-level scientific community in, in Galveston. Amazing. How, how'd that go? Went really well. Uh, some of the, uh, the comments were uh, one researcher said, you guys have the only game in town. Uh, another said uh, later that the field had fallen down two rabbit holes. Uh, one of them came from the Miller-Urey experiment of the 50s where they were sparking atmosphere in vessels and seeing amino acids getting produced. So first rabbit hole was everybody copied that experiment for 30 years, but it didn't really reveal much. And then this, the discovery of the steep submarine vents, black smokers and white smokers, and that there's life around them deep in the ocean. And that's where the field sort of focused for the last 20, 25 years. But that's been a rabbit hole, too, because if you're trying to do primal chemistry in the ocean, you just everything just breaks up and dissipates. It's no place for the origin of life. So perhaps our theory is now has its time. We're moving back on land, back to 
Darwin's warm little pond where in the 19th century Darwin mused that life probably began in a warm little pond. Um, so we're going back there, but in hydrothermal springs where you have geysers that go off on a regular basis and fill and refill these systems. And it's very, if you go to a geyser, if you go to a like Yellowstone or Bumpus Hell, everybody looks down at those pools and they look like a, a basically a big chemistry set. And so that's that's where we're focusing our, our theory uh, and, and starting to show initial results in the lab when we simulate those little pools. Wow. Well, uh, that that takes me back to my childhood personally, and, and it's interesting also you mentioned the uh, the sagebrush, Bruce, because I, I grew up in Grand Teton National Park when my dad was working for the National Park Service, which uh, she still does now, but in a different capacity. Um, we went up to Yellowstone a lot because Yellowstone's actually a, a you know pretty decent drive from Grand Teton, and I loved looking into those those vents. Uh, a lot of the kids and you know a lot of tourists really like Old Faithful because it goes off you know pretty much on the hour every hour right by the lodge. But um, it's it's big, awesome, spectacular, hot and and very misty and smelly. But I loved looking into the pools to the degree where I couldn't tell if I was seeing the bottom and. You know, as I got older, I, I you know increasingly realized I was not seeing the bottom. I'm looking at almost infinite strata going, you know, deep down into the the guts of the earth. Um, so that that takes me actually to, to a bit of your presentation that I caught on TEDx, and, and we'll link to those videos uh, in the podcast description and certainly your website as well. But you were talking about uh, lipids and and looking at how they distribute in a liquid solution of, of water. Um, the uh, Lipid separation is almost lifelike unto itself. It, it takes me back to learning about lipid bilayers in, in biology class. It kind of, you know, emerges almost in front of your eyes just watching fats react with water. For my money, I would say that the, the amphiphilic molecules, the, the lipids, the fatty acids, are nature's gift to life because they emerge from non-life but they are they have so many lifelike properties and they're wild i mean the, the molecules jostle against each other and they're not ionically bonded they just sort of snuggle up against each other they flip back and forth in the bilayer they're constantly flipping and doing these somersaults just through physics and as a result the membranes can carry things they're porous they're they're transmissive so the the lipid the lipid membrane is, is, I think, the great gift of the universe to the living process. It's the, the, the molecular innovation that is so wild, has so many properties, unlike a mineral, you know, unlike a gas, unlike ordinary molecules. Well, uh, there is an application of your uh, envelope proposed to enclose and encapsulate asteroids and, and comets. That was very interesting, I think, as well, with respect to this context, which is the idea that in a lot of these objects, you can actually liberate a good quantity of lipids. Um, and, and if you were to synthesize, say in the future, if we had a, a next-level um, replicator, 3D printer, uh, you know, uh, 15th gen, whatever it might be, gen N of our current 3D printer technology that approached the level of detail in, in Star Trek's replicators, that I feel lipids would be essential, and especially replicating uh, organic chemistry. In fact, uh, the magic of lipid, if I can reveal a little bit of this, is you get uh, all this stuff for free. And what we found in our experiments, so we, we built this simulator in the lab, and by simulator I mean it's a real piece of hardware that has 24 well plates, and it goes around, it's a disk, and we can we get we get under a station where we spurt water in and with the lipid and say for instance nucleotides, and then it moves around and dries out on a drying station. So it's kind of like those pools in Yellowstone on a cycle. Hmm. And the lipid does this magical thing; it dries down to this film, and in between the film, it traps the nucleotides, and they line up and they form uh, basically RNA. And we believe now that we're forming double helical structures just by self-organization. So the, the lipids squeeze all those molecules into a confined space. The water is ejected and you get the bonds forming so that 
the literal molecules of life uh, are formed by lipids drying down. And then when we squirt our water back in, trillions of, of little compartments butt off of those dry layers. Think of it like your ba- bathtub ring. Sure. And inside those bubbles are random biopolymers. And Dave and I sort of looked at that and looked at each other and thought, if that isn't an engine to test for out of the trillion bubbles with random RNA, if this isn't a system to to push molecules up toward a living. It's interesting that you, you know, that both in the, the asteroid shepherd program that we've discussed here and also in, you know, the origins of life research, there's this notion of the, the envelope you know the boundary. You you know, in in one you're you're wrapping almost like one one cell devouring another cell. I mean, and, and you actually draw that that uh, connection in your TEDx talk. Uh, and then all these chemicals that create a space for that same alchemical chamber to exist. And so there's this there's this interesting uh, similarity or complementarity between. The idea of a essentially like a spherical boundary around something, and the you know what what I know from studying evolutionary systems about uh, I guess you know if we're going to take the the nerd factor down a notch here, <laughs> oh, okay, fine. <laughs> then then I guess the example for me would be uh, out of pop culture how it seems that so many of the real. Uh, legendary this is a principle of evolutionary biology but i'm like as an example uh that i think is maybe more relatable all the really big musical acts uh so many of them come from little uh island populations you know that there's there's a like the, the beatles come from britain you know david bowie comes from britain peter gabriel comes from britain uh so many of the the electronic acts that evan and i have played with in the last few years are coming out of australia you know that there's there's a sense in which um this uh, enclosure rather than these people trying to I- innovate and to uh, penetrate or you know the, the the surrounding culture on the mainland is almost impossible. It's like you were saying about uh, the you know small shallow pools near the surface versus the, you know life trying to exist down at the you know the sea vents deep deep in the ocean where there's strong currents and all sorts of motion. That it's like you know to to attempt a you know to try and break into the music scene from the continental United States over before it starts because there's something about that boundary that is essential to creating the, the container. Yeah, I completely agree. And in fact, uh, it struck me just a few months ago that if you, if you looked, if you parked yourself outside the earth and watched human beings over the next thousand years, um, if we don't sort of burn ourselves up to a crisp in some way, what you could see if this shepherd idea works is this explosion of what seem like cells pouring off the planet. And the cells are, they're, they're uh, surrounding all these objects that actually contain the building blocks that made the first cells, which were down on the earth three and a half billion, four, year, four billion years ago. There were all these little cells that wrapped themselves around the amino acids and things that were coming in the dust particles from the solar system, suddenly there's bigger cells coming out and they're, they're consuming uh, and they're, they're, they're um, uh, the, the same objects, but on a bigger scale. And it looks like life, that the whole planet decided to go and, and exude itself out into space, but using the same technique of this, this encapsulation and, uh, gestation, just as you're talking about gestation of music, you know, in these small containers of intense gestation and creativity, um, getting it all ready so that you can go out into the wide world, whether it be, you know, living in the oceans in the Archean or, or tra- traveling and pro- projecting life off of the planet into space. It's this beautiful gesticulation and creation and adaptation has to happen in these little containers. And then the, then the containers change the whole world. They, 
you know, in the, in the Archean Earth, the microbial communities that arose had to transform the planet. They had to they had to precipitate the iron out of the oceans, and they had to create a buffer there that would allow oxygen to go into the atmosphere to create the basis for us. And it's almost like you're absolutely right, Michael, that, you know, it was the Beatles going to Hamburg and playing 3,000 sets in those clubs. <laughs> You know, and then then they exploded onto the scene on the, you know, uh, on TV in the United States in 1964, and they were so good because they had been in this bubble of uh, having to entertain half-drunk people in terrible, uh, you know, clubs, and they were just good by the time they were they were evolved and matured, and and they they exploded onto the scene, and then they made the transformative ecosystem shift in music uh, because of this uh, you know gestation that they had it's it, you know I, it just riffing on that and, and probably kicking this up a significant number of nerd notches it, it occurs to me that there's actually a, uh, a similarity between the way that we uh, we've inherited the, the four base pairs of DNA but then there's also this fifth base pair uh, uracil that only appears in the RNA. That's sort of like the fifth beetle. Like it didn't. Yeah. It didn't quite. <laughs> you know, it doesn't show up in like the you know the main disc discography that we inherit. But it's it's still there. It's still you know for it's it's still an important function of of uh, what we're dealing with here. And we've got what uh, one of the great speakers we had last week showed how uh, there through the genetic code. And what the genetic code is, is, of course, the coding between the RNA and the peptides, which are your proteins. You know, there are 20 amino acids that are sort of coded for by those, those four base pairs. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that there's an ancient part of that code where there's a subset of those, those amino acids that are used, and then it gradually gets extended. And nature's just added two more amino acids. They're rare, but they're found in nature. And he was pointing out that this is an active extension going on of the genetic code of nature finding a use for two new amino acids. How new are we talking about here? Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly it's in the, probably the, it's got to be in the many, many tens of millions of years. Uh, but, you know, human beings, uh, as we stress uh, the world's, you know, climate, as we stress the ecosystems, we're forcing a tremendous amount of evolution going on in the biosphere. And it, who knows if you, if you uh, came back in really a short period of time, you might find that Bragg's amino acids, some component of those <laughs> now being Apple used in, uh, yeah, in, <laughs> in, in, in bacteria and garbage dumps, you know, because they, they just, hey, there's another amino acid, we'll, we'll use it in our biology. Well, I've actually, I've worried that, uh, that, you know, somebody's kombucha that they forgot about in the closet was going to, you know, evolve thumbs and take over the kitchen. Well, I mean, you yeah. never know. Yeah, I have a, <laughs> a, a large agate that's in a hydro agate, not just like a little tiny bubble of water inside of the quartz matrix, but a significantly large one to the point where if you shake it, you can hear it kind of glooping around inside. And uh, I had several of these specimens that I gave away to, to good friends uh, and gave them kind of the uh, disclaimer, like, please don't drop it, because I don't know if we're going to unleash like a, you know, Andromeda strain on people. Like, I have no idea what's in that ancient water inside this quartz crystal. In, yeah. In fact, the oldest pieces of Earth's crust are zircons, uh, which are little cubicle things, tough as bejesus, that are found in the Jack Hills in Australia and other places in they have tiny little pockets of fluid in them. And that's the only evidence that we have that Earth had oceans uh, beyond 4 billion years ago is, is, the, is these zircons. And, you know, it, 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 it's been preserved all that time. It's amazing. There's no uh, living systems in them, but it's a bit of the Archean Ocean. Yeah, um, I would I would love to know if I get the chance to, to surgically drill into that specimen that I've got still and, and find out what's inside. I might be disappointed, but I, I do want to know. Um, I, I guess just to, to take a right or maybe a 45 degree angle with this for a moment. Um, I was reading an article recently 
uh, called A New Physics Theory of Life on Quantum Magazine, uh, talking about a uh, MIT uh, physicist uh, named Jeremy England, who has been doing a lot of research into sort of a thermodynamic origin of life, looking at uh, uh, chemistry being, uh, in a way, predisposed to dissipating heat and uh, excess energy, sort of passing the buck to the next chemical chain and saying, hey, can you use this? You know, I'm, I'm asked a lot about this, the article, and I, I read it about a year ago, and I, I went over this with Dave at UC Santa Cruz, and he just sort of shakes his head because every once in a while, somebody from outside the field, which really lacks understanding of, say, the chemistry elements of life or how life works now, will make some kind of broad statement. And his answer was, it provides no... Uh, no insight for us experimentalists. And the more I thought about it and, you know, looking at that again, you, know, you can make a broad statement that things self-organize, but unless you solve the hard problems, and the hard problems have really nothing to do with sort of a general physics properties. The hard problems are something like this, that if you have a container of molecules how do you keep that container from popping? You know, if you, if, if you can keep the container from popping, how do you uh, support the molecules resynthesizing themselves because they're constantly breaking down uh, against uh, hydrolysis? You know, and then if you can solve that problem, how does life solve the problem of, of squeezing out waste products? So it's, people like England don't even think in these terms. And, and yet these are the, the challenges life had to, to solve to create a system that is constantly going away from what we call equilibrium. Um, and and it's, it's, it's an annoyance in a sense because it, it attracts a lot of attention, but it helps nobody in the field to crack this mystery. Um, you know, and you just have to go back in the lab and keep working and just, just uh, wait till it all goes away. Sure. Well, I appreciate that take on it because in a way it does seem a bit too easy. It's, it's sort of uh, similar to um, Genesis itself in the biblical sense of, of saying, well, it's, it's inevitable that this would happen. Uh, we can describe it this way with just the, the simple, you know, basics and extrapolating forward. And, um, the, you know, the Drake equation is not that simple. And uh, we are facing now an increased quandary as to why we don't find uh, friends out there. I have a, I have a quick answer to that, because I know uh, we could continue going, but I don't know if you guys have a hard limit in an hour. Nope. Not really, but uh, well, yeah. I, I wrote four new terms. Uh, people do this for fun. I wrote four new terms on the Drake equation for a talk I did six years ago at the SETI Institute. Uh, where Drake, Frank Drake works. Um, but I, I have some more insight now going to the Archean, going to Western Australia and seeing the geological setting uh, of the Earth. So here you have a planet, it's a rocky planet that formed, cooled down, had a big impact that putatively created the moon then had to recool, had a lot of uh, volatiles delivered, it had, it had oceans you know, it had oceans and a, and a crust, but a very, a very hot mantle still. Um, and you have an environment that's worse than a toxic waste dump. You know, these rocky planets are, they're incredibly dangerous places. So the concept of panspermia, i.e., you know, life coming in, single-celled, all well-evolved from another planet, and being able to survive on the early Earth, I think, is implausible. So... We look at, we're, we're in between Venus and Mars, so Venus goes to runaway greenhouse right away. Even if it had oceans, it went to basically an, an acid CO2 atmosphere, and Mars had oceans, could have supported life, but the, the system wound down and dried out the atmosphere being lost. So, so here we are, we're, we're stuck with a, an ideal planet, purportedly, but life has to start out, evolve to survive in this terrible environment in the Hadean and the Archean, and then it has to transform a world. And it takes three billion years. So of, of the history of, of life on Earth, 
3 billion years or seven eighths of the story of life on earth is microbial communities, microbial mats, no animals, no fungi, you know, nothing like that. It's the microbial mat adapting to build, doing niche construction and building its ecosystem. And then only after all that, we get the great oxygenation event at about 2 billion years where there's finally a buffer of oxygen going in the atmosphere. And then we have to roll all the way down to, to 800 million years ago or 600 million years ago when we start to see things that we might think of as multi-celled animalcules. And so all of that, you know, in the middle of all that, we have snowball earths where the earth freezes over. We have impactors. We have big volcanic events as the, as the mantle continues its cooling. And none of those events reset, but push the control alt delete on the Earth. But I would I would uh, offer to you that in the trillions of exoplanets, rocky exoplanets with ideal conditions like Earth, many of them get reset. So, and even if they only get reset a little bit, they get put back so far that say oxygenation never happens. So you can never get this higher energy uh, metabolism kick in. So most of them go all the way to the, you know, to the red giant phase of their star uh, in microbial communities that, that are ubiquitous, that may get started relatively quickly and easily. But complex life has to go through that gauntlet of the three billion years and not being reset and then then being reset, you know, if, if the right asteroid impacts ended the Permian and it ended at the Jurassic-Triassic boundary, it allowed stuff to get cleared out for new evolution to happen to allow us to be here. So I think that, that complex life that you know, holds podcasts is <laughs> extraordinarily rare. Wow. Well, I think complex life that, that adds additional variables to the Drake equation is, is extraordinarily, extraordinarily rare. So <laughs> also really <laughs> essential because it, it, this all highlights, uh, you know, how little we know about the, the origin points and the, the uh, sustainability of certain stages of life's evolution. And um, I'd love to get your input on another more popular article, which is the sort of pre-discovery of this ninth uh, planet in the solar system that is estimated by a, a couple doctors at Caltech to be perhaps about 10 times as massive as the Earth. And, and we know that Jupiter is responsible for, for sweeping a lot of uh, cosmic and, and interplanetary deterioration out of the way to, to safeguard the Earth from, you know, massive impacts that could destroy and, and sort of reset the, the biological clock over and over again on Earth. And, and uh, we know so little about our formation, maybe even something like a, an outer uh, solar system protector on, on the level of Jupiter or maybe even smaller. It could be perhaps instrumental. So uh, if we can confirm this discovery, um, maybe that has another variable to the Drake equation, a, a sort of sentinel on the uh, um, work cloud level. You know, we were, Galen and I were in New York, and uh, I went out to, at Christmas, and I went to the Hayden Planetarium where our friend Carter Emmert, uh, 10 years ago, we were lying on the carpet over the door for the Zeiss, tell the Zeiss projector, and he put for the first time real-time Sloan survey star fields, clusters and whatnot onto the dome. But this Christmas, they, for the first time, had the, these incredible new projectors, and they were basically using the dome as a real-time flight simulator flying over 3D Mars data through canyons and everything. It was really wild. And one of the things we did is Carter's usual tour of the universe talk. There's an excellent TED talk about this that he, he did a couple of years ago. And it turns out they're doing sort of a tour of the exoplanet universe now because of all this incredible Kepler data. And it turns out that our solar system is extraordinarily unusual. We've got, the, with the rocky planets uh, close to the, the sun, and as you say, this cold, gaseous protector that's further out. It's a really weird configuration. So it is another term on the Drake equation. And models that are being done recently uh, suggest that Jupiter was closer in and that Jupiter actually migrated out and that the asteroid belt is sort of a broken up or a planet that didn't form 
uh, it's holding the asteroid belt in place in between Mars and Jupiter. And, and you're absolutely right, it's a sentinel. Uh, and it, it's planets the size of, of, of Jupiter are, are pretty uncommon. Um, and that you often find if there's a giant, a gas giant, it's close to the parent star and it's hot. So we, we have a very unusual configuration as a solar system. And Elon has stated that he wants to go to Mars. So I started poking around because I'm connected through my work in avatars and virtual worlds in the 90s with people that know Elon and have worked with him. Um, so I started to send them the links to the TEDx talk and doing more talks. And finally, um, in December, I did another talk in Santa Cruz and my co-speaker was the head of an electric car company, software company. And he said, I will get this to Elon. And he did. So just before Christmas, um, I just received a note that the, the CFO of Solar City has introduced my work to Elon. So Elon perhaps saw the TEDx talk that you guys have seen. Mm -hmm. And the reason all this is so interesting right now is that in the 19th century, there was a, a fellow kind of looks a little like by Elon, a, a taciturn type of a guy named Isambard Kingdom Burnell. And this guy single-handedly, through all these financial instruments and sheer force of will, introduced, uh, took the steam engine from its use as a mine pump system, Newcomen steam engine, and put it into making railways and steamships and revolutionized transportation in the 19th century. You can look him up online. He's quite a character. But, and I realized that there is a possibility for a single individual, a kind of a Henry Ford or Bill Gates slash Steve Jobs, single individuals can transform the world. So I've been circling around Elon, and I was hanging out with one of his board members uh, last year, and he he said to me, Bruce, I just came from Elon's uh, Mars Mission Plan workgroup, and I what I saw on this on the screen was 19 Falcon 9 heavy launches to lift the water and the fuel for a Mars-bound crew. 19 launches. You can do the math on what that costs if if for instance SpaceX had to pay for it. And I said to him, we can reduce that to one or two launches. If Shepard is flown in prototype for 15 years, we prove it up, and then we go and get the volatiles and bring them to cislunar space, and we have a fueling station. We can take all that cost out of the system. So I'm getting ready for the call or the email or the tweet or the text sometime this year where we're invited to go down and make our pitch uh, to whoever it is uh, and see if we can convince them to start investing. Because it's really just CubeSats, low-Earth orbit demonstrators, space station demonstrators. We go and get a, a military satellite that needs servicing. We relocate it to low-Earth orbit so we can get a four or $500 million out of that. Um, and we just do it stage by stage by stage until the thing is proven. And then nature, I predict the following, nature loves a good pool game. So nature throws us a, a cue ball in the 2030s of sending us a comet that gets captured in the Earth-Moon system and is partially broken up and it's actually orbiting in this very oblique orbit in the Earth-Moon system, like kind of what we saw with Jupiter, with Shoemaker-Levy, although you know, Jupiter took the brunt of that. Um, and if that happened, my friend, uh, the uh, lunar mining guy, said if that ever happened, it would be the most valuable real estate in the solar system. Everybody would be after that because it would be tens of thousands of tons of material that would change the economics of space. So let's hope that, you know, Mother Nature, you know, bigger than Gaia in this case, gives us a plum and we we're just ready enough. We just have built the with the gas enclosure technology to actually go and, and take advantage of that gift. That's amazing. Dude. I, the whole time you were just speaking, I was quote unquote cheesing. Like I just get the biggest smile on my face Same here. because the situation that you're describing here, getting, getting these plans to Elon Musk and, and building out the stepwise 
the stepwise long-term plan is freakishly similar to a story that's actually from that that Project Hieroglyph book that I, I mentioned earlier. This book, a story by Gregory Benford called "The Man Who Stole the Stars" or "The Man Who Sold <laughs> Freudian Slip," "The Man Who <laughs> right. Sold the Stars," and it's like that that uh, short story, which I would recommend to you, given your expertise, you'd be probably the most uh, qualified critic of that story. Is like very much a a similar kind of stepwise program to inspire the very people that are working on the stuff that you're pitching right now. Art imitating life, imitating art here. I think that means we're on the right track. You know, people, uh, the irony was that also that Shepard, the TEDx talk came out the same day in May that uh, Neil Stevenson's new uh, novel came out. So I, I got all this email of people saying, Neil is writing about the thing that you just talked about. Neil was here 10 years ago. He, he came to visit the Digibarn Computer Museum, and I have a picture of him uh, with Brewster Kale sitting on the bench seat of the Cray One, you know, one of my heroes, because I just love the, the Baroque cycle and, you know, uh, all of his books, Snow Crash. Well, uh, you know, speaking of uh, just a, a quick, like, tech turnaround from the, the IT sort of angle back to the mechanics, uh, of uh, even your your shepherd project um i, I was thinking when, when watching the, the models that you've created of of it deploying the envelope around the asteroid or, or comet um the parallels between that and and the processes initially thought to be somewhat unfeasible with respect to solar sail technology which requires deploying a, a very large surface area in space and utilizing that surface area to accomplish a specific task so I wanted to ask you, like, given that and the other challenges involved, what do you feel is, is the most major technological hurdle of that type of process? The big one is this. Um, there's several, and I'm hoping that as this thing goes forward, that we can institute some grand challenges. Uh, we're kind of like the DARPA challenge and this, the X Prize type of thing. And one of them is sealing of the enclosure. Hmm. So you'll notice in the um, in the video in the animation. Julian and I worked on this for five weeks. I sat in this hut every single day and dreamed up how do we take a fabric structure that's 60 feet across that has to be gone out to half of its diameter, get around the asteroid, and then you push it to closure, and then you use Vectran ropes to tighten the end down. So think of like a a balloon where you just, you know, use a rubber band around a balloon and it pretty much is a good seal. Sure. Well, it's a little different of this type of fabric. This is helium balloon fabric. And we can't use any hard trusses. We have to use air beams. And we, we, have, we have to pull what is effectively the full diameter of the structure down and seal it. And then so I would come up with a design. This was in 2014. In April, I would come up with a design, draw it, shoot it on my phone, send it to Julian in Santa Barbara. He'd get on the phone. He said, it'll never work. And then I would get depressed. And then by the afternoon, I'd have a variation and I would send it back to him. And then he would send me drawings. And after five weeks of this, we, we came up with this soft self-sealing material as the last four or five feet. And this curving curtain rod structure clamping down on a, on a disc plug that would seal everything down tight because if we can't if we can't seal we can't keep our gases in we can't use them to manage we'll lose all of our gases to space in several years and uh, that that's just one of the challenges the other ones according to julian who designs balloons he said this is low tech the materials are known uh, if we can seal our balloon we can manage our gas we have vents we have what called blisters uh, in the balloon trade with all of our lighting and our vent return vents and stuff. On the outside, you just have solar collecting blankets and you have dark and light patches that you can rotate sunward to change your interior temperature. And really, you need to do computational fluid dynamics to make sure your, you know, your 1,000-ton space potato is well taken care of inside the enclosure. But... There's other problems like turbidity. When when you introduce an atmosphere, dust and pebbles and things are going to come off. And if it gets too invisible that you can't even use your LIDAR and you can't tell where the shape is, you're going to have to reopen 
the, the enclosure and let all that material out. You know, so the, the, we wrote a very detailed proposal to NASA that had all these fallback positions and uh, to solve some of the problems, but really sealing deployment, not such a big deal, but getting that type seals a challenge. What kind of atmospheric pressure are you looking at inside this uh, this enclosure? One tenth of an atmosphere, uh, and then the initial capture profiles a tenth of an atmosphere of xenon. Gotcha. Low, low. If we do satellite servicing with this, this is a friend of mine, Lockheed Martin, who works on military satellites, and there's a dead, there's a couple of dead ones in geostationary orbit uh, and in low Earth orbit. And he said, do you realize that if you can get this to work, we can basically go out and get one of these with Shepard, use gas, or we can actually just mount it. There's a places where we could just grab it. So it's inside the enclosure and we're, we're deorbiting it, coming into a low Earth orbit, that we can send a crew up on Dragon that don't have to be in spacesuits. They can be in their pajamas and have a tool belt. <laughs> nice. They can go through airlock and they can service it in a 50% Earth atmosphere without spacesuits, without the manned maneuvering units and all that stuff, no cranes, nothing. We can do satellite servicing with a human crew, lightweight equipment, and then Shepard could take it back out to a geostationary orbit and redeploy it so we don't have to deal with loading with hydrazine and stuff like that. It, that was an interesting one because that's, that's the kind of thing that could get us a, a whole chunk of money to do a demonstrator for the DOD, whether you like them or you don't. Uh, they have the money to potentially fund... Uh, rapidly fund and develop this thing. Bruce, this technology may actually already exist. I was just, uh, I, you may be familiar with this already on on some level. I mean, I, I'm sure that you you remember Biosphere 2 back in the 90s. Yeah, you know? yeah I uh, visited there. I, you, I know some of the Biospherians actually. Yeah, I was going to cool. say, did you, ever, did you ever meet William Dempster? Uh, I knew I knew John Allen pretty well, and um, um, Gay, and I mean Laser and Gay. Yeah, I mean uh, they were in the second crew. I, I I just got an email from Laser a couple of weeks ago. So I mean, you probably uh, know, or you know, I I was just out at uh, Synergy or Ranch in Santa Fe, where the the team that worked on that is still hanging out, and uh, I just found this paper online because. I was looking for something I could send you. They uh, they took me on a tour of the uh, the sort of mock-up demo facility for generating a uh, a leak-proof, a relatively leak-proof. Uh, in order to make Biosphere Two, you know, they had to demonstrate that they could keep the internal atmosphere constant and buffer it against the external atmosphere, so that you know, minimize the leakage. And when they presented this research, which I'll send you the paper and we can maybe link to it in the show notes if somebody wants to get super uh, technical with it. They found a way with Biosphere 2 to keep the leakage at under 10% a year because they were they, they set up uh, a, like lungs, basically, expansion chambers that provided this uh, negative feedback and maintained it. So like I, I know that when I went out to visit the ranch last year, the guys that had worked on that project said that they'd actually presented this stuff to NASA and that NASA had been amazed because their system was operating at, at uh, tolerances like an order of magnitude better than what they had on the, the uh, International Space Station. Yeah, that's great. I, I went out there eight or nine years ago, and uh, it's a really great group of people. It's To my mind, it's the only group of hippies from the Haight-Ashbury that went on and built this incredible visionary business empire, you know, with hardwood forests in Costa Rica or in Costa Rica or wherever it was, or Puerto Rico, and an art gallery in London that I did a talk at called the October Gallery, and there's their ships that are going around studying coral reefs, and, you know, it's amazing, and they're just a communally living group of people. Maybe a model for the kind of group that we would want populating one of these asteroid mining facilities. Yeah, yeah and this gets me back to one more point I think it might be valuable to uh, make in the podcast, in the show, is that our origin of life model, this, is, this was an aha moment in the outback in Australia in July. I was looking out at the soils, and we just had a rainfall, 
And the whole place had come alive. You know, the soils were burgeoning. And I thought to myself, there's a pattern in life that is a collective, that soils are a collective. They're like a microbial mat. They're like a community. And when they're hydrated, they come alive. And in our model, we have dehydrating and rehydrating small pools. And then suddenly it occurred to me that, wait a minute, if we have our stable bubble, protocell bubbles with their polymers that are becoming more and more robust and stable, that means when the pool dries down, they're going to clump in the bottom of the pool and form a gel, a hydrogel. Hmm. And that inside that hydrogel with concentrated elements from the drying down pool and this network effect will kick in and that this is a communal unit. Carl Woese called it a progenote. I said to Dave, I said, wait a minute, an individual bubble with just a few functional polymers in it doesn't stand a chance to survive for long in, in, on its own in the Archean. But this gel phase would, and Dave turned to me and said, then it will be, it will be selected for. So then I realized that the origin of life, at least in our model, could, could be this communal unit of this gel where functions are shared. So if a genetic, a little piece of uh, genetic code arises that allows one protocell to make a pigment that can protect against sunlight, ultraviolet sunlight, then that pigment will start getting made in the gel phase and it will spread across the top of the whole community and protect, protect all the members. And then I realized that unit of that gel is the beginning of life. It's the origin of the microbial community as a whole, not as an individual cell competing with its genetic code because you don't have that yet. And then it sort of extended out to me to the whole planet, which was, and we're still in that world. We're still in a communal unit. Our bodies are communal units. Soils and forests are communal units. The whole system is a communal unit. Uh, we just got it <clears throat> wrong in our philosophy in the last 300 years or so, believing that we are individuals separate from the communal unit. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but, you know, understandable given what, you know, the, the way that our infrastructure and our social existence changed, you know, we moved into the anonymity of urban living. The story that we've allowed ourselves to tell ourselves about natural selection, fighting tooth and red and tooth and claw and, and economics, you know, whereas epigenetics, as, as you have talked about before, Michael, has come in and transformed evolutionary theory. Um, but it's a blend. It's a blend of competition and a beautiful collaboration the whole thing and that competition is used as the big selector as the tool fashioner and that the but the communal unit supports the entire matrix and all of the populations are are fed and given everything they need by this unit sure and one, one significant factor that comes to mind with respect to the biosphere of, of the earth say as opposed to mars is the magnetosphere and our increased understanding of how that protects us for, from cosmic radiation, both from the sun and from interstellar phenomena. And uh, I wanted to ask you uh, one last question here, Bruce, because I think we should probably wrap it up here shortly. Uh, but one last tech-related inquiry is, uh, you know, why are we so fascinated with going to Mars versus, say, Venus that has a intact magnetosphere versus the collapsed and, and hodgepodgey spotty electromagnetosphere of Mars, because we, we know we need that. We also know we need gravity, and, and Mars has one-sixth uh, approximately of Earth's gravity, and Venus is a lot closer to ours. So I'm wondering, why don't we go to, to Venus and make cloud cities? Why the beeline for, for Mars, which is arguably the deadest planet that we could find? I think it's because uh, it looks like the Wild West. It looks like Arizona, and we can... We can do movies like The Martian with Matt Damon. You know, <laughs> it's the romance of it. It's familiar. You know, it's actually kind of looks like home a little. Definitely. The moon is just too weird. Venus is, you know, 900 degrees at the surface and occluded by cloud. Mars is the only place that kind of even has anything resembling looking like Earth with that sort of bluish haze, like southern Arizona or somewhere like that. Right. So it's, it's aesthetic in a way, like a kind of a connective element to the innate drive of, of humanity pushing west, so to speak, into the, the unknown. But uh, 
maybe in that sense it's a beta for what comes next, like Venus or perhaps uh, Titan or Europa. I think that the um, it could be a little red herring, though, given that it's the red planet. <laughs> but I'm sure. That if we're going to do the real ultimate act of spreading human civilization, taking the pressure off the Earth and spreading life off the planet, which may be our prerogative to why we're even evolved, why we're here, uh, we, we probably can't look at living on planetary surfaces like, like, like Mars or the lunar surface. We have to build a lot of infrastructure in space and to, to house life. We have to move our biosphere into space, and you're not going to do it very easily by plunking it down on Mars. You're going to do it much more easily with inflatable structures in, in orbit where you have plenty of resources and plenty of energy, but no dust. Agreed. So again, the, the future looks, you know, or may look uh, sort of like Darren Aronofsky's habitable eco-bubble from The Fountain. If you remember that film, Bruce, I don't know if you saw that, but his... Didn't his, see that. His, his, uh, you, you, all, you almost invoked it uh, yeah. with your, your TEDx talk about Shepard enveloping a, an asteroid and then building a, a miniature biosphere out of that asteroid, that there's... Darren Aronofsky's vision of the the like unfathomable high technology future was no controls, no blinking lights, no panels, a man in a bubble with a tree and a pond, and he's floating through space, and they're in this closed ecological system, and and it's uh, it it has this uh, this elegance to it that it seems to to echo this sort of fractal self-similarity that you've identified in your work between the little things that we're made out of and the structures that seem to be uh, our best bet for carrying ourselves beyond. Yeah, beautifully said, Michael. Thanks. So I guess just as a, as a parting note, we've, you're now guest number two on our podcast and we had this, this thing uh, we started last week where we, you know, given that this recording is now a fossil of a moment and a conversation, and that uh, the largest audience for this conversation is probably one that we'll never live to meet, you know, presuming the uh, the integrity of our data storage manages to keep it al- around for that long. MDisk. Oh, yeah, yeah. MDisk. <laughs> but uh, but so if you like, if you had a short message for the future whether that's your own elderly future self or whether that's the unborn generations, what would that, what would that message be? I think that message would be, don't worry, be happy. Uh, don't, don't listen to any other story than the waking every moment miracle of our existence, our, evolu- our deep evolution and our incredible potential and that we're just uh, rare miracle beings uh, that are doing things better and better. Our minds are opening. We're learning about the heart, the mind, the soul, connectedness. We're doing really well. You know, we're, we put our nukes away and we just picked up our smartphones. And I think that was a, a better uh, way to go into the future. Wow, mm. that, that sums it up pretty well. And, and thank you so much for your time, uh, Bruce. We, we deeply appreciate it. And we'd love to have you back on again uh, because I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. And uh, if there's anything else that you wanted to mention in terms of speaking events or a plug of some sort, if there's anything you wanted to mention, uh, we're happy to, uh, to include that here and link to that. I think um, the, the, my, one of my favorites, of course, is I've, I've also got a podcast uh, called The Levity Zone, uh, and you can just look it up under Levity Zone. It's on iTunes. It's on levityzone.org, and it's on SoundCloud and everywhere. And it, it contains a lot of this this thinking and stuff. And next time we should talk about the current state of the festival scene, um, and uh, that'd be a, a fun conversation. I, I I've been invited back to Lightning in a Bottle in May. I'll have to see whether I can do that, but that that'll be my next public uh, talk that isn't uh, in rooms full of scientists or engineers. Wow. Well, yeah, that, that would be great, and, and definitely in the in the vibe of what we're uh, gearing up here for in terms of sharing this with our with our friends and, and peers uh, in large in that in that scene. So, um, look forward to our next conversation and to your your podcast. 
Yeah, Levity Zone's a fabulous, fabulous channel for conversations, Bruce. So definitely encourage all of our listeners to check that out. It's definitely uh, more expansive and playful than I think the last hour uh, by and large. We just had a visit from the Merry Pranksters here in Santa Cruz. So you'll find uh, the most recent episode and the next one is a... these amazing characters from American history telling their story, um, the merry pranksters themselves. That sounds awesome. Thanks again, Bruce, and have a spectacular evening planning the, the future of our planet with all of your brilliant friends.